Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing the stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Stephanie Jabauer. And joining me today is Deaconess Pamela Bailey Silva. Pamela comes with years of experience as both a deaconess and a registered nurse. She also brings with her years of wisdom learned through the crosses she's been given to bear. And mainly today, we'll be hearing of the grief she experienced while caring for her mother and the grief she now endures following her death. Deaconess Pamela, thank you so much for joining us so that we might learn from you and hear your story. Would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. First of all, thank you, Stephanie, for inviting me on your podcast. I'm really excited and honored to be here. As you mentioned, I am a nurse, so I've been a nurse for, oh, 35 plus years, and um, that was my first vocation. I also became a parish nurse for Holy Cross Lutheran Church in 1996 through the LCMS Parish Nurse Program. So I did that for quite a few years, and then in 2006, I traveled to Kenya to work with deaconesses and pastors there, particularly in the great HIV-AIDS epidemic that was going on. And there I was introduced to the deaconesses of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Kenya and really fell in love with them and said, that's who I want to be when I grow up. And by then, I'm in my 40s, so... (laughs) (laughs) I ended up going back to school at the distance learning through the seminary in Fort Wayne and became a deaconess in 2011 and was called to my church, Holy Cross Lutheran Church, and have been serving there as deaconess since then. Wonderful. And where do you live? I live in Rockland, California, which is um, in Northern California, a suburb outside of Sacramento. So I live with my husband. He's a first grade teacher getting ready to retire, and we have two grown children. So we're empty nesters for a while. Okay. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, like I said today, Pamela, to talk. And you have contributed to a book. Can you tell us about that, too? Oh, yeah. A few years ago, Katie Schuerman, who's just I've gotten to know as just this delightful, wonderful author, speaker, friend, beautiful Christian woman, invited me to write um, in a book called He Restores My Soul, which is a, a series of chapters written by different women about different crosses that we bear and written in a Christian context using Psalm 23. And so my chapter was written about my mother, who at the time was um, had been suffering from dementia about 10 years at that time. So Katie asked me if I would write about that, and I did. It was probably one of, uh, I, it was the hardest thing I've ever written in my life, to be honest with you. And the title of that, that chapter was, I Remember You. And then the verse was Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So, you know, I really had to face some of my own demons and my own grief 
and my own fears, which is one thing to write them down for myself, but it's another thing to sort of put that out there publicly. It, w- it was pretty intense, pretty scary, and very cathartic, and really was very helpful for me, and ho- I hope helpful for other people. It's a beautiful book, and your chapter is beautiful as well. I really enjoyed revisiting that chapter and reading about your story. But for those who have not gotten a chance to read that book or your chapter yet, can you tell us that story? Mm. Yeah. So about the time that I was getting ready to take my first trip to Kenya, so that was in 2006, I was noticing some things about my mom. And my mom and I are very close, even though we lived about three hours apart. But I noticed that she was, you know, getting a little forgetful, forgetting a name or misplacing her keys or just different things that I just sort of chalked up to being normal, right, with aging. But yet there was this sort of niggling in my mind of something is changing here. And in that chapter, I do write about she was in the hospital um, having surgery. And right before her surgery, we were just, I was sitting at her bedside and talking to her about, you know, as a nurse, I mean, one of the things we ask people is, what is your greatest fear? And she said, my fear is that I'm losing my mind. And I kind of went, oh, really? Thinking, oh, maybe she's just joking. But she goes, no, I'm really, I'm really afraid that that's happening to me. And so then it became kind of apparent that, yeah, things were changing. And so she began this journey of doctors and going to a clinic. And I began this journey of traveling to foreign lands where I felt completely unmoored, unprepared, out of my element. And I had to kind of learn what it meant to be helpless and vulnerable and rely on God because all of the things that I knew that saved me or helped me or, you know, I fell back on were just completely stripped away. And what I recognized is my mom was going through the same thing. So as a nurse, you know, she was no stranger to disease or even death and dying. But one of her biggest fear and my biggest fear was getting something that would debilitate us mentally to where we would be a burden on other people. And with dementia, one, there's no cure, right? So it is just a slow decline and sort of, I I kind of describe it as, you know, holes being clawed and punched into someone's brain so that you begin to just slowly lose function. So for her, it affected her, obviously her memory, but she became also fearful and still cognizant that she was forgetting. So she would you know, when I would see her, she would just like kind of clutch me and say, you know, I'm losing my mind. And I just, I didn't know how to respond, but to try to just hug her and tell her I loved her 
and assure her that God was with her and we were going to take care of her. But still this, this deep fear. And that went on for probably a couple of years, the fear and the insecurity. She began to wander. One time went out in the middle of the night. My, my stepdad didn't know that she had left the house. And she fortunately had taken her purse with her that had her ID. You know, because women of that generation, you always have your purse, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was about midnight and wandered the neighborhood and got into someone's house. And they, yeah, they were like, whoa, they had a gun. <laughs> fortunately, they were able to see that something wasn't right and see that she had her purse and they called my stepdad and he came and got her. That was a pretty scary time. And actually, he didn't even tell us kids for a month or two because I think he was so shaken up by it as well. She went on a familiar walk in the daytime. She walked every single day, took care of herself, took vitamins, participated in nursing clinical studies on long-term care. So she did everything that she was supposed to do, right? And one day she went walking for whatever reason on a familiar route and ended up downtown, so several miles from home. Another time she drove her car to the beauty shop, a place she had driven hundreds of times before. Got lost, got turned around, Ended up driving in the wrong um, side of the road and off the road and wrecked the car. So it just kind of began to really slide into this is getting more and more serious. And as she became more and more helpless, I became more and more grief stricken and fearful myself because I didn't know what to do. You know, I was still traveling and still working as a deaconess, raising my kids and trying to figure out how to best take care of this woman that I love so much, but saw her disappearing before my eyes or what I felt was disappearing before my eyes. I had a lot of chats with God, (laughs) a lot of railing against God. You know, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to her? You know, she's faithful. She's a person who takes care of people. She's taking care of herself. It just, you know, the things that we do when we're grieving and when we're fearful and when we're angry. And then I would feel guilty about that, of course, until I'd read the Psalms and recognize that, you know, there's the Psalms are full of laments and full of questioning, even Jesus, you know. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So just kind of ambling down this road of grief and unknown. And I'm a person that likes to be prepared. So, you know, as a nurse, I would research things and read about things and think that you're, you know, if you have knowledge, then then, then you're going to be okay. Well, I was completely unprepared for this, as was my mom and actually the rest of my family. 
And so I didn't know what to do. This was really uncharted territory for me. And so it was really learning every day how to, one, be a child of my mom and now her adult, if you will, how to be a child of God, how to trust, how to let go, how to acknowledge all of the feelings that I had and not try to stuff them down, although I did, and then try to also be a wife and a mother and a deaconess. And so... Remind me, when you wrote that chapter, your mom was still living, correct? Correct. Yeah. So she died, I think, about a year later. She died a yeah. year after mm-hmm. after that book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Pamela, you know that this podcast is a podcast about life issues and, of course, mm-hmm. God's mercy and his care for us, even in the suffering that we have in this life. And so when you were caring for your mom in those roughly 10 years of her dealing with dementia and since you're a deaconess and a nurse (laughs) how do we look at that and then as people of god how do we define a life even when her memory is gone even Mm -hmm. when she cannot do things for herself that's a fantastic question and You know, for years of being a nurse and seeing all sorts of life and death, I really learned to see life as such a gift from God and very sacred because we are made in God's image and that God values all life. And it's not about what we do, but about who we are in Christ and our identity as God's beloved. Even before my mom died, my my father had had a heart valve replacement and was getting he's getting ready for this surgery. So my father died in 2011, right before I graduated from uh, deaconess school. A few months before that, he was getting ready for this heart valve replacement, and so we were talking. And I asked him, "What's your greatest fear?" <laughs> and he said that I would have a problem and not make it through surgery. Not that I wouldn't make it, but that I would come out a vegetable. And I said, okay, so what if that happens? Are you still willing to go through the surgery? And he said, yes. So during his surgery, he actually had a stroke on the operating table and was left unable to speak you know, one side of his his body was paralyzed, his, you know, his mouth was drooping, and so many of his friends and even some of our family was like, you know, he wouldn't want to live like this, and this is terrible. And, but when I went back to see him, and I walked into his hospital room, and I saw him, and he saw me, and I saw those beautiful blue eyes, and he just fastened him on me and grinned on one side of his mouth. And I just was like, this is my father who now has become dependent and helpless and is relying on 
the the vocation of doctors and nurses and his wife visitors to care for him and he did that with such grace and dignity and i saw this shift of we don't get to define how life should be nor do we get to define how a person thinks their life should be in, in other words what i'm trying to say is even though my dad didn't want to be this way, he still received God's mercy through the faithful care of his pastors who visited several times a week. We would pray together. We would laugh together. He just accepted what was going on. It was just, I was really kind of stunned by that. And so I saw that also with my mom in that This was her greatest fear, to have dementia. And yet, fortunately, after the fearful time, she just became sweeter and sweeter. It doesn't always happen. Many people whose uh, family members get dementia can get mean, you know, because it changes their brain, things in their brain, and their personality can change. That did not happen with my mom. I'm very grateful for that. But for those people that go through that, it is extremely difficult and challenging but what i could see is my mom became more childlike more delighted by taking a walk and you know as she lost the ability to name a flower she would point at it and i could just i could see the beauty that she was seeing or she'd point at a bird and you know words weren't necessary And she loved children, so I'd try to take her to the grocery store or something just to get her out of the house and get her a little more stimulation. And and it was pretty obvious she had something not right. You know, she kind of dressed crazy, and there's a look that many people with dementia have. But she would see a child or a baby and just light up, and families were so sweet to her. And, you know, they would just let her talk in her you know little mumbly way to these children or stare at them and i just thought wow christ's mercy and love is shining through her i was so touched and so moved to see that because again it just shows how god she she may have forgotten my name she may have forgotten everybody else's name She may have even forgotten how to put the communion wafer on her tongue. But God does not forget. And God loves her more than I could ever even imagine my love for my mother, you know, his love for her. And, you know, he's known her since before she was born and has engraved her on the palm of his hand. That was so evident to me. And that. God's way of seeing her was, as Dr. I know you interviewed Dr. Kleinig, and I'm reading his book, the, you know, the yeah. wonderful way. God sees her as whole and holy. And for me, that was just that lesson again of we don't define a life God does. And I'm so grateful, as hard as that was to witness for both my parents, I'm just so grateful for the beauty of seeing Christ in them and being able to bring Christ to them 
where we kind of mirrored Christ to one another. And uh, I think that without the anchor of Christ, sometimes it's very difficult for people to understand that, that life then outside of Christ is defined by worth or what we bring or what we do or you know, oh, well, you're a burden on society, so let's do euthanasia, or this child isn't wanted, so, you know, just have an abortion, or things that we say to disassociate ourselves from the fact that life is sacred. And as, as you were talking, Pamela, I was, I was trying to remember the hymn. You know, as your father had his stroke, then your mother, with her dementia and you had said even sometimes couldn't remember to put her communion wafer to her mouth i think of our hymn jesus lives the victories won and that final stanza is faith shall cry as fails each sense jesus is my confidence Mm. your senses may not all be there even your mind could be taken from you even while you have life and breath, but Jesus is our identity. Jesus is our worth and our confidence because we're baptized into his name. And so we can cling to that. And as you said, um, the same as in aging and dying as life in the womb, which also isn't able to do anything for herself or, or himself and Christ keeps them. I also think of the Gilbert Mylander essay, I Want to Burden My Loved Ones. It's a beautiful writing on why even in old age, <laughs> we're able to to rely on the church to care for us. Because in a way, just as you said, they reflected Christ to you and, and you to them. And that's part of a sinful world and suffering is that sometimes, most times, Aging is a process or dying is a process that is just not something we were made for. (laughs) That's why it feels so utterly foreign and it is our enemy. And you had mentioned fear, fear of your mom when she was going through um, this, especially at the beginning. And then your fear, what was that fear exactly? Was that was that kind of a, a symptom of, of grieving? How would you describe that? What were you, what were you fearful of as you were caring for your mom? Yeah, I, I think that fear and grief can feel the same. <laughs> but I, I did have fear in that, you know, fear of what's next, fear of what else am I going to lose? Every time I would see her, because I lived, um, you know, far enough away, I didn't see her. At the end, I saw her a lot. You know, I would just took time off and saw, spent a lot of time with her. But typically, it would be every three weeks or so, I'd, I'd go up and visit. So I could notice the changes that were happening, the things that were slipping away from her. So it was that fear of what is going to be gone this time. The fear of where is my place in this world as my mom, who was such an anchor for me, as my mom no longer has that particular role or that role has shifted, how do I transition right now? Who am I 
without this person that brought me into the world, who knows things about me and parts of my life that no one else knows, right? Our, our parents and particularly our mothers just have, a, have our history. And so I felt that as she slipped away, part of me was slipping away as well. And to be really honest, I mean, also the fear of, is this going to happen to me? I mean, that's being honest. And I think that most of us who have parents or loved ones that have dementia have to face that issue. So there was that and the fear of, I just don't know what's next. And that, and so for me, which is, you know, none of us are really in control. I think control is really just this illusion. We just delude ourselves by, you know, making lists and checking them off and being prepared. You know, we don't, you know, I do that. I'm very much a list person and very organized. So when things are out of that realm of fixing, doing, taking care of, it's like, what do I do now? And then how do I spend time with my mom? Because I can't do anything. And so what I realized was I don't need to do anything. I just need to be present. And I sit in maybe being uncomfortable. And I sit in being silent with her because she no longer spoke. So that's okay. So, you know, we drive around and look at scenery or I would just sit with her and hold her hand. And so I learned that the fears were deeply intertwined with my own grief. And then knowing that she would die from this illness, but just not knowing how long. So another fear was how long can my stepdad take care of her? Because she was becoming really needing 24-hour care. And God bless him. He just did an amazing job. But fear of fear of not doing enough, fear of not being there, fear of what are people going to think, fear of am I letting her down, fear, you know, just all of those things that I had to just kind of live with and pray about and, and trust that God had it. God's got it. I'm not in control. Did that answer your question? Absolutely. And now I'm just thinking, because you cared for her all those years, and she had this illness for, for quite some time before she died, you said, in 2019. How did your grieving during her living prepare you for her grief mm. after her death? And is it different? Yeah. Has it been different? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, because there is such a thing as preparatory grief or anticipatory grief where we anticipate, particularly with someone who's got a long chronic illness, and you know the end result is going to be they're not going to get better. And so I think with the amount of grieving that I was doing, um, I knew that her dying would be difficult. When I actually got the, the call, I was in Kenya, and I got the call that, that my stepdad was putting her in hospice. So I knew that her time would, would was really shortening up. And then it was, do I come home? Do I stay? Do I, what do I do? So there was just like, ah, what do I need to do here? And I ended up, I did end up staying. And, and when I got home, I was able to be with her. She was alive for another couple of weeks. 
at first there was a little bit of relief that, okay, she's no longer suffering. I know where she is, right? The victory's won. So there was that joy of, oh, thanks be to God. What a great thing. She's all the saints in heaven and the feast that never ends. So there was that joy, that security, that gratitude. And yet I was not prepared for the depths of grief that I, that was to come. I really thought, okay, I've been through this watching her. It really can't get any worse than this is really what I thought. But I really plunged into this really deep, raw grief that I was unprepared for. It really did surprise me, to be honest with you. For weeks and months, I just felt hollowed out. I wasn't obviously wasn't thinking clearly. All the things that I teach when I teach a grief or a bereavement class, you know, I could sort of step outside myself and see happening. And yet when you're in the middle of it, it's so consuming to where honestly, I didn't I didn't really care about much of anything. Even my vocation at church. I really went through just the day-to-day routine and felt like doesn't everybody know that my rug has been pulled out from under me and this person I love is gone and yeah I was surprised by that and I was talking with a really dear Christian friend of mine and her mom had died oh I don't know 20 years before and she told me she said Pamela I think about my mother every single day that just gave me permission to go, yeah, she, my mom is such a part of who I am. Her influence on me is still very evident. I was able then to kind of then begin to live back in that gratitude again and grief because they can exist together. She died in August and I was scheduled to do a trip to Kenya in Jan- that January, so right before COVID hit. And I thought, I don't know if I have the energy to do this or if I can even think clear enough to put a curriculum together or whatever. But I did end up going. And that was very helpful because it helped me get back on my feet a little bit. I was able to go thinking, my mom was such a person of compassion and mercy. And by honoring that, I'm able to go and do this visit and be with people I love. And people who were just so kind and supportive about the death of my mom. And um, so I gained a little bit of confidence back, if you will. And then the grief began to just sort of shift. I mean, it's still there. It's still deep, but it's not so raw. It's not so in my face. Like every day I'm not uh, thinking about it. Um, And now it's kind of turned into a, I'd say a sweet sorrow, if you will. Mm. Yeah. A sweet sorrow. You mentioned in your in your chapter for He Restores My Soul, you referenced C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. Mm. It seems like throughout the four chapters he has in that in that book, he goes through a similar process and he begins describing his grief for the loss of his wife Helen, who they had only been married for, I I believe, just a couple of years, three maybe. 
before she died of cancer. The first chapters are wrestling with God, anger, fear. I mean, he even begins his book by saying, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. These things are what you had mentioned, walking around, seeing the places that they would go visit together, the park benches they would sit on, and having that whole experience be covered in this dark veil of intense pain. And then ends his book, kind of how we know C.S. Lewis and and remember him as being this very wise and grounded in scripture, you know, theologian who then puts it back on God and allows it to, to rest in his care. But did you experience your grief in a, are you experiencing your grief in some kind of linear way that has been predictable or is your grief more of this circular experience where you sometimes come back to feelings that you had at the very beginning or when those feelings were so raw how how are you experiencing that that's a good question i think that we i think that if we think that grief is linear we're really deceiving ourselves because grief kind of the way that I've learned to think about grief, it's kind of like a, a slinky, if you will. You know how, you know, do you get, people still know what a slinky is? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know what a slinky is. I have children. So, yeah. <laughs> so if you, you know, you kind of, sometimes if the slinky is, is smashed together, right? It feels like grief is kind of, I think of it more as a, a spiral, if you will. So, if this mm-hmm. slinky is smashed together, sometimes you feel like you're making no progress around anything because it's just so tight and compressed. But if we if we hold up the slinky really tall and it, it's extended, sometimes you can see, oh, okay, I have made some quote unquote progress, if you want to call it that, on this spiral, but we're still always kind of moving and sometimes what happens is that slinky gets compressed and we feel like i'm back to day one my mom's birthday was was recently here and i just thought oh i just want to be up there with her i want to eat ice cream with her i want to buy a cake i want to you know just like that sorrow sort of overwhelmed me again it doesn't mean that i i haven't been grieving or that i did something wrong it's just that grief is grief is messy and unpredictable and we can't control it. It happens the way it's going to happen. There's days when things seem great, you know, particularly in those first few days. Well, I wouldn't say they'd be great, but there were days when I could get through the day okay. And then there were other days when I had to take a nap or then I wasn't sleeping at night or I'm a little more short-tempered. <laughs> than other times or I would get upset at what I thought were people's tiny problems when don't you know I have this big problem so I think that like C.S. Lewis I think he would even say when when his book you know you're surprised by how grief affects a person and when it happens to you it's it's surprising in the sense of Hey, well, I know a lot. I I teach bereavement classes. I know all this. 
but head knowledge and heart knowledge and going through it yourself are two different things. And so I think what I would say is there's a vulnerability in grieving because you just don't know what's going to hit you the next day or that or within an hour of a day and Mm -hmm. learning to, again, recognize that this is a road of unknowns. Even though I had grieved my father, right? The death, his death, each, each death is different. Each time we grieve is a little different. Family members do it very differently. I know my brothers uh, were much more matter of fact. I know they were grieving. Um, I have two older brothers, but I needed to talk about my mom. I needed to connect with them. I needed to say how I was feeling and they were much more matter of fact. That wasn't, they didn't need that. So sometimes I felt very alone because months after someone dies, the rest of the world has moved on. And often the person who's grieving is still really suffering, but gets the sense of "Mm, people don't really want to hear about this anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that can be a little tricky for the person who's in grief. But using the slinky metaphor, are there times when people just for years stay in that compressed state? And if they are, as a deaconess, <laughs> what kind of comfort or encouragement or wisdom do you give them? I, I don't even know what happens after you're in a compressed state, but yeah. surely you, you wouldn't want someone to stay there forever. Right. In my vocation as deaconess, there's a couple things. One, I do offer bereavement classes. So I do encourage people to come and learn about the process, have a a place, a safe place in which to talk about their loved one, to talk about themselves, and then to hear that they're not alone. So often it's through people sharing their story that they hear like, oh, okay, I'm not alone here. There are people that do go into a clinical depression. I mean, I've seen that happen. And so if that grief is prolonged, you know, grief does not just affect us emotionally, but it affects us spiritually. It affects us physically because God has made us mind, body, spirit. And so I, I will encourage them to, you know, meet with me, meet with their pastor, be faithful in coming to the divine service Many people that are grieving don't want to come back to church because now they're not sitting with their loved one or they tend to cry. I mean, I remember crying during the hymns at church, but for me, it was very cathartic. But for some people, they feel embarrassed. So encouraging them, even if it means, hey, I'll sit with you, I'll pick you up, being willing to hear their story again. Referring them maybe to their physician. You know, maybe they need an antidepressant if the grief has gone on for a really, really long time. Or referring them to a counselor that can specialize in grief and bereavement. Because God just give, you know, those as vocations for people to, for us to be able to seek some help. If that grief has come to where they're not able to re-enter life. I mean, I'm, I'm talking after a, two or three years because that first 
couple of years can be really, really tough, particularly for, I think, for widows and widowers, I think, or if you've lost a child or something. Hmm. Pamela, where was God in the suffering that your mother endured? And where is God even as you grieve? Mm-hmm. Well, God, God has certainly been my anchor. I think the beauty of our liturgy, the beauty of, particularly now as I think about it with Lent, that we're journeying with Jesus towards the cross and thinking about his suffering, what he endured, not only on the cross, but as he was healing people, you know, where he would heal them of their diseases. And and then that great exchange happens where he takes their infirmity into himself. And so he, you know, he bore our weaknesses, he bore our sicknesses, he bore our grief, he bore our anger, our fear, our all of those things Mm -hmm. and took it to the cross. And so as I began to see suffering in light of Christ's suffering, that was comforting to me. And that I actually really, really saw in action in Africa. I think that's why Kenya is so near to my heart to see what suffering can look like on a daily basis in a in a way in which I never had seen before. And to see these deaconesses bring Christ to people in need when they themselves were suffering. That was probably one of my bigger, uh, they were probably my biggest teachers in that. And so it doesn't take our suffering away, but what I recognize was that Christ suffers with me and for me and never leaves me alone. Because there is a point at which people can't, even if people are walking beside us, we can't take someone else's pain away. We can help share their burden as, you know, bearing one another burdens in love. But at the end of the day, we are kind of alone, but never alone because Christ is with us. So I think looking at Christ and his suffering helped me look at things through a different lens so that it, again, was a little bit of sweetness and joy tinged with sorrow, if that makes sense. It's certainly a paradox. Yeah. <laughs> joy with sorrow. But Christians experience paradox as a way of life, too. If, if I may, may I quote from your chapter in your book? Because this is beautiful. And uh, suffering is talked about in a very honest way in that entire book, and especially in your chapter. And you asked the question, how do I endure this suffering, O God? And instead of hearing an answer, I catch a glimpse of God himself, broken and suffering. Through my tears of lament and sorrow, my eyes are open to see the tears of God. These companionable tears are comforting. And then you go on to quote Isaiah 53. Once again, we're on this Lenten journey as we record and and we'll be hearing these words Isaiah 53 says, He was, Jesus Christ himself, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. As you said, again, echoing in, in your chapter, you say, instead of explaining suffering, which is often, if not all times, what human creatures are wanting to do, instead of explaining suffering, God shares it with us. And by his wounds, truly, we are healed, you write. So I thank you for, even as, as that chapter had to be miserably hard for you to write and to, re, to relive yet again, I thank you for writing that for us, for the church. These are not words that we will hear outside of the church because we have this theology of, of the cross that we're able to proclaim that. And so my final question, Pamela, is you asked this question in your chapter, and I heard you say it before, this gratitude mixed with grief. Well, how do we live in that tension of grief and a grateful heart? Yeah, that, that is kind of the question, isn't it? Because I think that, you know, we, we live in this world with sin and sorrow. That is a reality for all of us. And yet, the gifts that Christ gives us, thinking about well, you know, what you just read from Isaiah and thinking about how after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples, right, and shows them his wounds and Thomas, you know. So Jesus carries with him those bodily scars of his humanity and his suffering. In his risen and glorified body, he continues to have those scars. And so Jesus, you know, that's a paradox in and of itself. And so living in the reality of a world that's, you know, a little messed up and causes sorrow and pain, and yet we live with gratitude for the gifts that God has given us each and every day. For me, it is a, a, a kind of a spiritual discipline, if you will, a practice that I have learned to practice. And even as much my husband and I do our devotions in the morning, we write down three things we're grateful for. And often they're mundane, but isn't that what life is, right? Seeing, really seeing what is there to be grateful for? Kind of like I, I envision my mom out on a walk with her, seeing God's beauty and being able to somehow convey that gratitude to me. And so, you know, God gives us his wonderful creation. He gives us friends. He gives us family. He gives us himself, which is the greatest gift. I do think that Sorrow and gratitude, grief and gratitude can live side by side and intertwine. That's a, it's a very wise spiritual habit to take on, <laughs> is to list things that you're grateful for. And often as we, you know, even as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask that God would give us this day our daily bread. And daily bread's often very common <laughs> Absolutely. and very mundane. And there is still rich blessing in that because without 
Christ sustaining it all, we would be lost. As you see it as a, as a member of the church and as a deaconess, how would you hope that a congregation and the, the church as a whole would care for people who are grieving? I would say avoid platitudes <laughs> such as she's in a better mm-hmm. place or God needed her more or are you better today? That kind of thing. Because I know that, that people want to help, right? And I've said such things myself, so I get it. But really what a, what a person needs is for that for others to remember that this is hard to maybe give someone a hug or write a note or just check in. How are you doing those first few weeks? You know, we're really good at sending cards and maybe bringing a meal. But after that first month is when the the deeper grief tends to settle in. So remembering, especially if you're good friends, maybe jotting down the death date and remembering a year later or sitting with someone who's by themselves they're asking is it okay if i sit with you today at church so they're not alone Uh, making sure they come to church reaching out to them um, because they're not they may not have the energy to well they probably won't have the energy to reach out to someone else and then being willing to hear their story maybe they need to keep talking about this person that they love and so creating space and time for them to do that is what I would say. And pray, obviously, with them and for them. Thank you. Deaconess Pamela, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Stephanie, for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. And um, your tender and gentle kindness in interviewing is is wonderful. Mm, Thank you. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to find us. And don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life. Thank you.